Hello, and welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast for Edgewood Church in Danville, Illinois. This week at Edgewood. Heavenly Father, God, I do thank you for this day, and I thank you that we are here. I ask now that you would bless this time that we have together. Lord, I pray that you would uh, just, Lord, fill me with your spirit, fill this room with your spirit as we look at your word. Lord, I pray that your truth would uh, be evident. Lord, I pray that it would be demonstrated. Lord, God, I pray that you'd help me to avoid uh, just my own thoughts and ideas, but Lord, let it just be your um, ways that are, are revealed today. I pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I'd like to ask you this question. I'll have you help me out. I'm not just going to ask the question. I'm going to kind of point you in the right direction, I think, I hope. And then you're going to correct me if I'm wrong. If I were to ask the question, what makes people great? And I don't like that question because I don't think great's the best word. So this is the first way you might be able to help me out is maybe adjusting the phrasing of the question. But when we think about what just makes people awesome, right, amazing, what sorts of things in our minds, and maybe you wouldn't necessarily say this, but maybe deep down inside somewhere, this is kind of how you operate, okay? So before you start thinking of answers in your head, I want you to first answer, uh, try to think, how would somebody answer that question apart from Jesus, okay? So maybe think back to before you were a Christian, or think about people that you know that aren't really connected to Christ and church and all this, right? Uh, how might they answer it? Now, I think how you might start to think, and you correct me if I'm wrong, I think that people might go, uh, well, uh, maybe they're really talented at what they do. Would you agree with that? Uh, something that might make somebody great, whatever it is that they do. Uh, that's kind of all-encompassing. So if they're a really good athlete, they're, they're, they're a basketball player, they're a great basketball player. If they're, uh, what if they're an actor? They're a great actor. If they're the, whatever it is, right? If they're really great at what they're doing, so their abilities being demonstrated, that might be something that makes somebody great. Would you agree with that? I mean, that might be how people might answer that question. Okay. Um, I think other things that might make people great, air quote great, um, if they have a lot of influence, would you say that that might, they, they're a great part, they've influenced like historically people who are great, great this or great this, great general or great this, maybe strategic minds, things like that. Um, this may not make the person great, but I think that a lot of times what makes a person have an impact, a big impact, so great in the sense of just big impact, sometimes just having lots of money, Right? I mean, that's something that might... Okay, but those are all the world's answers, right? You guys are, you guys are smarter than that. Right? So let's put our church hats on. Um, what sorts of things make people great? Um, maybe you could answer it spiritually. Now, don't throw our answers out there yet. Just doing some thinking here. And I want... Because sometimes I put you guys on the spot and you're not for sure exactly what I'm looking for. So, so I want to give you three things that I think that people might say in a church environment. Once again, great. I don't know if that's the best word. Maybe spiritual. What makes a person like a really spiritual person? I think there's three general categories. Um, one of them might be, are they, very, are they really bold for Christ? Would you say that that's something that maybe just a, they're, they're great at being a Christian? They're very bold. I mean, we, we, we think about that. I'm not downplaying any of these things at all. Um, very willing to speak the truth in any situation. 
right? They're, they're bold for Christ. They're able to maybe be in a situation and see the reality and they go, this is the truth. They're not afraid to back down. I'm not talking about being rude. I'm just saying they're very bold for Christ. Would you say that's one of the things that we admire or appreciate? Might in our head, that's, that's a great Christian. Or maybe we even strive to be. <clears throat> a second one, how about knowledge? Like one of the things that might, in, somewhere in our head, we might think that's something that makes somebody a really good Christian, somebody that really knows the Bible. I've thought that myself many times. I, I, I'm not saying that that's not true right now. But wouldn't you say that makes a great Christian, they, they really know the Bible. They know things about God. They, they, they kind of have, they're tapped into some of those deep truths. Like if I'm trying to figure something out, that person that I think is a great Christian, I usually go to that, there's that person in my life that I go, I'm going to go to them. Like, I explain this, this is not making sense to me. And they're like, well, and they always seem to have the answer. Right, so this boldness, but also I think knowledge is another aspect. This next one, you may not think this way. I'm going to just tell you the truth right now. I have thought this way. Something that, some, that has made in my mind like really spiritual is to have that emotional response. Now, I'm not an emotional person, but, but let me give you an example. When I was struggling back, way back in the day, before I think I was even maybe even a Christian, right? One of the things I hoped for that would mean to me, like I've entered into true spirituality, is to have one of those moments where you're sitting there in church, and maybe the preacher preaches something, or maybe it's during a song, and you have one of those moments where you just, you're filled with that, like, oh, maybe the tears come, and you're moved. Maybe it's conviction. Maybe it's joy. Whatever the emotion is, um, we might tack on to those experiences, and that's the great spiritual stuff. And to be emotionless, do you ever feel like if, if you're just sort of emotionless, like you're missing out on something? Anybody ever felt that way? Like you, and you hope? In fact, sometimes when we're struggling to change, like we've struggled with maybe obedience in certain areas, we, we hope for the, because maybe that's what we thought like when we were kids. And this is why sometimes even our services were geared this way to have that big emotional response at the end so that you could have that coming forward and on your knees and crying because, and, and I'm going to be honest, that usually didn't work for me because I had some of those and I still struggle with the same stuff the next day. So, but have you ever felt like, man, that's what I, man, that's what I want. And people that maybe that you know that have that as much, like the, the ones that maybe you see them in church and they're, just, they're singing the praise song and they're just like, the, the tears are welling up and they're just praising God. It's like the, nobody else in the room exists. And you're just looking at them going, man, I want some of that. I mean, they, and I think, sometimes we think they might be more in touch with something great spiritually that I might be missing out on. Would you agree with my assessment so far that those are the things we might think, even in a church environment, makes someone great, quote-unquote, air quotes, for lack of a better term? Those three things. Now, I've decided today to be very blunt and direct, not to work around to try to get you to see something. I'm just going to come right out and say it. Those three things are exactly what the Corinthian church were struggling with, thinking that's what makes great Christians. The terms 
in a general sense. Now, I'm going to give you three terms that we've been talking about when it comes to spiritual gifts. And I think one of the problems that we have in understanding these spiritual gifts is because we hear these terms and we, we put them into a little box and we think, this means this specific thing, and this means this specific thing, and this means this specific thing. And I'm going to tell you, I don't believe that. I believe that if we look at them in a general way, we will understand this passage much better. So the first one, being bold. You could call that, I believe, the spiritual gift of prophecy. Boldness to speak the truth of the Word of God is what I believe the gift, spiritual gift of prophecy is all about. Can that take a variety of, of ways? Can it, can it be displayed in a variety of ways? Can it be so prophetic that it's very specific? Yes. Can it be over here? You know, not as specific, but just general truth being spoken. That's still a, very much a gift of God, isn't it? Yeah. The second one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to in just a second. Knowledge. We talk about the spiritual gift of knowledge. Paul mentioned that one. Let's think about it in a general way instead of this specific. Like knowledge is this exact thing. Think about it in a general way. Let's, let, me say, let me put it this way. In this sermon that I preached this morning or any sermon that I've preached, is it possible that the very sentence I say, like a specific sentence, that every single syllable is given by God, like God wanted me to say that exact sentence in that exact way. Is that possible? So the gift of prophecy is coming over into this, but specifically knowledge. So if I explain something, it's possible that the exact sentence I say is exactly... Now, I, I will say that always the end result is what God wants, but... But to say that God like, is dictating to me, like, I, that, that's never happened. You guys know that, right? Like, I'm not up here. Like, I don't have an earpiece, and God's going, um, say this next. Right? So, so in the gift of knowledge, there's this mixture, and I think it's an elaborate, miraculous mixture that isn't exactly the same every single time. This elaborate mixture of God specifically and some of me. Right? The end result is all God. You see this displayed perfectly in Scripture because how Paul writes and how Peter writes are different. It's all God. The end result, we said this is the very Word of God. But God was not going down to Peter and dictating to him what to say. That's not how inspiration worked. Some of their personality filtered into it. You see it in their grammar. Peter, bad grammar. People who study the Bible and they look at the grammar, they, the, Peter, not the best grammar. Paul, much better grammar. I go, how is that possible? I, I don't know. I, but I know that God is over that sovereignly working it all. So the end result, I think the same thing is true even today as I'm talking. There could be some sentence today that God's like, that's exact phrasing. Some of it, he's letting a little bit of Matt come through. You probably recognize those parts because those are the parts you go, well, that was dumb. <laughs> You know, those are the parts that uh, when I say it, my wife goes, oh my goodness, what is he doing up there? I mean, some of me is filtering it. But we're trusting that the end result is a gift that God has given of knowledge. That's what we're hoping for, right? So here are these two things already. Prophecy and knowledge, if we look at them in a general way, I think the knowledge one, it helps me understand the other ones. Okay. Gift of tongues. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail, but I want to say that one aspect of that, and I'm going to ask you to trust me a little bit this week, and I'll go into more detail next week. 
One aspect of that is an emotional outpouring. Okay, now just trust me this week. I'll get into more detail next week. Okay, uh, is it possible that the very syllables that somebody's saying when they're speaking in tongues is something that God has given? Yes. Could it also be possible that some of that is just that person's emotion? Yes. Now forget the tongues part for just a second. Let's set that to the side. And let's take one little aspect of that, this emotional outpouring. Do you, don't, I mean, I look at someone who can just be in church and just suddenly everything f- just fades away and they're full of emotion and God is great and they're just singing praises to God. I look at those things, man, that, this is exactly what the Corinthian church, these three things the Corinthians have elevated is that's the most spiritual stuff. And I think we do the same thing. Someone who's really spiritual can be bold for Christ, can be really knowledgeable about the Bible, and is, can be moved easily by the Spirit of God. Paul steps in here in the middle of talking about those gifts, because they are gifts of God. Knowledge, gift, prophecy, gift, right? These things are gifts of God. But Paul steps right in the middle of this and says there's a more excellent way. And he starts, last week, and I'm going to read through this first part from last week. He starts by saying, even those things are nothing without love. Let me read through the first part of chapter 13 and listen for how Paul... So there's two things about chapter 13. The first one is this, that love gives meaning and purpose and life to the spiritual gifts. Without love, they're nothing. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... angelic language, the the languages of any human. If I could do that, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understood emphasis all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, what? All faith. So as to remove mountains. I, now somebody was going out. Now we don't really have many Danville mountains. But if somebody was going out going, you, move. <laughs> right? They're like, whoa, that is a spiritual person. In the name of Jesus Christ, move. <laughs> like, what? Paul says, man, if you, ha- if you could do that, but you don't have love, you're Nothing. It reverses my thought at how I view things is what this chapter is doing. If I gave away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned and have not love, no profit whatsoever. I gain nothing. Love gives meaning, purpose, and life to any gift that God gives us. You go, well, what, what is it then? Paul then waxes eloquent as to what love is, as we talked about last week. Love is patient and kind. 
Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's what love is. And without it, you're nothing. Paul has said. But I want to do move into the next section of chapter 13 because he switches out of this description back into some, some other thoughts, not leaving the topic of love. I'm tempted to go into a little bit of theology, but I'm going to save it for another day. Let's stick with what Paul is saying to us today. Love never ends, or some versions say love never fails. It literally says love never falls down. That's what it literally means. What he says next gives us the second reason as to why Paul is waxing eloquent on love. The first, love gives meaning, purpose, and life to the spiritual gift. The second is this. Love is permanent and will last into eternity. And he's going to contrast that with these other things. He says this. As for prophecies... Remember those prophecies, the ability to speak boldly, the truth, even the far end of the spectrum where every syllable God is giving you, maybe even to those Old Testament prophets that are able to speak, this is what is going to happen, or to speak into someone's life. This is who you really are. This is where you're really at. Those prophecies, Paul says, they'll pass away, or some versions say they'll fail. The tongues, they're going to cease. The knowledge, it will pass away. That's, that's weird to me, that last one. Is that weird to you? How does knowledge pass away? Listen to what he says next, and I think it's going to make sense. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now some have tried to, and I, I never recommend trying to build an entire understanding of something based on one verse. So some have taken this and they've dug in, and well, this verse means, and so this has to mean, Paul's talking about something big here. And this perfect, all throughout Scripture, is talking about end time sorts of things. When Christ comes back and everything's set straight. Okay? When the perfect comes, the partial passes away. He gives two illustrations. I'm going to come back to that. That verse is actually really important. I'm going to come back to it later. But he says this. When I was a child, we just sent our kids out, right? Yeah. You remember those kids? Yeah, they were just in here, weren't they? Did they speak like children? For the most part, yeah. Did they think like kids? Yeah. Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. One uh, Greek scholar, he translates this verse this way. He says, when I was a child, I used to talk like a child, form opinions like a child, count values like a child. And he says, when I reached adulthood, when I became a man, I put away, I gave up, I walked away from those things. I turned back on 
childish things. I just want to say that's not true with everybody, is it? <laughs> it's the first example. So what he's talking about, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. He, he brings up this idea of things coming to maturity. Kids don't see things. They don't see the big picture. I'm going to be honest. They don't see the big picture most of the time. They have a real difficult time. In fact, teenagers are, are really bad at this too. In fact, teenagers, I work with teenagers. You guys know that, right? I work with teenagers all the time. 19 years, almost 20 years now I've been working with teenagers. And they, they say that the brain is not fully developed, especially the frontal cortex is not fully developed until you get into your 20s. And I can vouch and say that is true. I deal with people who do not have fully developed brains every day. Specifically, that front of court, the ability to think, how will this impact me later? That part's not developed, and they demonstrate that every day because they do things that are stupid. Had some kids just this last week. I couldn't even begin to give you the list. This was a horrendous week. And that's John. I was telling him about it earlier. One in particular, I won't tell you about the worst ones. I'll tell you about one. Though. One in particular, these kids had just got in trouble. They ran away from the hall monitors. You know what that's like, Mr. Osgood, right? They ran away from the hall monitors. They, the hall monitors came, Mr. Osgood, could you pull up the camera and see where, where did they go? Okay, pull it up. Okay, I think they went and I see them. They go down, they go down and they're by this back door that they're not supposed to exit out of. And one of them opens the door as they're putting their cigarettes in their shirts, opens the door and letting them out right? And they all leave. You can't do that. And then the kid that didn't go out, he turns around, he looks at the camera and goes, <laughs> don't think he was thinking how this would impact him. And you know what? They're not really thinking about it anyway, because we live in a society where you can't just let people in and out of a building like this. They're not thinking about that. They're thinking, hey, wouldn't it be funny if I went out the door right now? Hi, <laughs> wave at the camera. You know, that's all they're thinking. They're not thinking big. Childishness does not see the full picture. That's what Paul's talking about. He says next. Now, the city of Corinth was known for their mirror-making abilities. Did you know that? Um, mirrors back then weren't like what we had. It was usually a polished metal, sometimes bronze or something like this. But they were known for their mirror making. They could make some of the best mirrors in that time period, the best technology you could present. Even with a great mirror, if you're looking at something through a mirror, imagine looking around a corner like, okay, what's around this next corner? I'm going to hold a mirror out, okay, right? And you can get a pretty good image of what's coming. There's things you can't get. Right? Sometimes it's hard to distinguish specifics. Sometimes you can't get the full picture. You're trying to, trying to angle it, looking around the corner, right? You can't get smell. There's no touch. Right? There's all kinds of senses that aren't, aren't factoring into this. Sound doesn't, I mean, there might be some echoing down a hallway, but mirrors don't help you with sound. So if all you're getting is what's coming through the mirror, partial image, not full. Now we see through a mirror dimly. The word dimly is the Greek word that, like if you just took the Greek letters and made them English letters, it'd say uh, enigmatic, like a riddle. If you ever say, that thing's an enigma, right? That's where we get the word. 
It's like it's not clear. There's, there's parts we don't understand. For now we see in a mirror dimly. See, it's, it's dim. It's, we're getting glimpses of what's to come. But then, in eternity, face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I will tell you, we, we will study the Bible in and out, up and down, all around. But until we get to heaven, we will not know the fullness of who Jesus is. That's what Paul's talking about. Now it's partial, then it's full. So this knowledge and this prophecy and all these gifts that God is giving us are like glimpses, tidbits, tastes. But there's some things that God gives us and allows us to interact with and handle that are eternal. See, the knowledge, right? Having this knowledge through Scripture and having this knowledge that God gives us. When I get to heaven, you know, it's like, it's like if I was get, trying to get to know John before he got here, right? And maybe he was sending me a message, text message, text him back, you know, kind of be getting to know him. But then none of that's important the day I go, Hey, John, how's it going? Right? And we start talking. I'm not going to go, I don't, hang on a second, I need to read your texts again. Right? That's ridiculous. Same is true of this. It's okay. It's okay. It's, it's, it's empty. It's okay. Dad, it's empty. It was empty. It's okay. It's okay. No big coffee stain on the ground. It's okay. Um... Refocus, people. Come on, come on back to me. I know. That stuff is going to pass away. We're not going to need it. I'm not going to need to read the New Testament in heaven to find out who Jesus is. I can just go over to Jesus and go, right? That's what Paul's talking about. But there's some things in this world that we can encounter, interact with, that are eternal in their very nature. Knowledge is not one of them, is what Paul's saying here. This kind of knowledge that we're getting is like text message knowledge. I would much rather spend time with John and talk to him. You, there's so much better than this, right? Some of you don't get that because you're like, I don't want to talk to anybody, just text me. But the reality is when you know someone it's better than anything else that you can get. It's, it's just different. It's a different level. Now, so knowledge, prophecy, this tons that he's talking about, it's all he says going to see. It's not going to last for, those are not eternal things. But there's some things that are. And listen to this next verse. So now faith, hope, and love abide. He's three. Now, just let your brain soak on what he's saying for a minute. Now, he's talking about love, and so he's going to emphasize that, but he gives us three things that are eternal in their very nature that will continue on into eternity. Faith. Faith is not blind faith that people teach you. Faith is built on what we know and understand. So the, fa the faith that we have now will come to fruition in heaven. It'll be complete. I will know Christ. All confidence will be in him because I know him personally. Hope. 
Hope is not, I hope so. Hope in the Bible is like, I'm confident of something in the future. Hope comes to fruition in eternity. So we have this shaky hope here, full, complete hope there. But there's a third thing he says, that we have the opportunity in this life, some things we get won't last. Some of you know this. A lot of things we have in this life don't last. Even some of these things we would count as great spiritual things, spiritual emotion and spiritual knowledge and, and spiritual ability to see truth and, and speak it. Those are, man, those are great. But even those things, Paul says, mm-mm. But these three do. And specifically, he says, in love, agape. And just in case you're not sure, he just lays it out there. The greatest of these, these three, is love. It lasts into eternity. It is in and of itself permanent in its nature. So love, two things from this chapter. One, love gives meaning and purpose and life to the spiritual gifts, all these temporary things that we have. It fills them up. It breathes life into them. But number two, love is one of the few things that you can interact with, encounter, experience, that in its very nature is eternal. What a cool thing that is. I'm going to stop right there for a moment, and I'm going to shift gears into something else, because when I got to that moment, I thought, you know what? There's something else, and I'm just going to cut to the chase. Earlier I said, what makes somebody great? Paul is talking to these Corinthians, and they have been lifting up the greatest Christians in our church are the ones that can do this, the ones that can do this, the ones that can do this. And Paul just came through with a, a theological, eloquent bulldozer and went, boom. No, love. These other things are great, but the great love. These things, in fact, these things are nothing without love. This is where it's at. Love as he has described what it is. I'm just going to come out and say it. If you're not a loving person, then I believe, I believe, you ought to question if you even know anything about God at all. If you're not a loving person, if that wasn't direct enough, I'm going to say it even more directly. If you are not a loving person, then I believe you ought to question your very salvation if you're not a loving person. There are many passages I could go to. Jesus says in more than one place that love is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the Bible. He says the summary of everything there is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. I could build a good argument from this chapter. The Bible even goes as far as to say that God is love himself. We are commanded to love God Love one another, love our brothers, 
love our neighbors, and we're even commanded to love who else? Our enemies. We are told to love because Christ loved and gave his life. I can go to a lot, but I'm going to go to my favorite. That play, and I, It's my favorite because it's so direct, and I just feel the need to be direct this morning. 1 John chapter 4, the entire chapter, I encourage you to read it. But let me give you three highlights in this chapter that are just there. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 say this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Well, what's that mean? What's that look like? Go back to Paul. Love is patient. Love is kind. So you go, well, I don't know if I love. It's not, I feel. That's not love. That goes along with it, and it's great when it's there, because it makes it easier, doesn't it? It's usually not there when it's love your enemies. You're usually not looking at your enemies and go, love you. But we're commanded to do it. So what is it? It's, it's putting, the word agape means putting the concerns of others ahead of, in front of you. Operating as they're more important than me. How are they feeling? What, what is this like for them? What are they experiencing? What is, what, what's their life like? What's going on with them? Like not, not bringing you into it. What about them? John's pretty direct. If anyone who does not, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is like, if you don't love, is what he says. What, how do I know if I'm loving? Oh, I, I hope I'm loving. Well, here, are you patient? Are you kind? Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable. Love is not resentful. Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing even when it's our enemies and they fall because of it. Love rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Back to 1 John, highlight two. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the, the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected, matured, made complete in us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. John's very straightforward, isn't he? Let me read the last part of that again. 
But this is love perfected in us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So our confidence for the day of judgment, where does the confidence, how, how we know? I've used this illustration many times. I cannot come to you and say, I know I believe, <laughs> rip open the, here's my belief. See, I know I have it, right? Can you see belief? You can't. See its results. See what produces. Specifically with John, he hones in on one aspect of confessing that Jesus is the Son of God and abiding in God and God abiding in you. What does that look like? Love becomes manifest in you. And by this is love perfected. It's matured by this because of this confessing who Jesus is and knowing and God abiding us and us and God. Salvation, right? Uh, uh, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So as the day of judgment's approaching, our confidence that I'm going to come through that unscathed, how do I know this love? Because, John adds, because as He is, Jesus, as He is, so also are we, and actually, if we go back, even in this context, God is love. As He is, so also are we in this world. Well, what's that? What does it look like for me to be God is love in this world? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way, even if you know your way is right and better. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes, all things, endures, all things. Third highlight from 1 John. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, not speaking of emotion, but speaking of action. Emotion ties in. If you say, I love God, but you don't put Others ahead of yourself, hate. Put myself first. That's hate. You're a liar. What's the lie in this context? What's the only thing that this person has said? You love God. I love God, but then you hate your brother. John says, you're a liar. You don't love God. That's what he's saying. Wow, John, harsh, but true, important to know. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Logic irrefutable. But what does that look like? I mean, some of these people that I know are sinful people. They're not God. So, but John connects, okay, loving God, the only way we can display this love for God, because I can't, you know, you know, 
oh, I can love you guys. And I can love these people that I work with. I can love my neighbors and my brother and my enemies, right? I can love all these people around me. Why would I do that? Because I love God. Is it because of them? Are they doing everything right? Are they doing everything perfect? Are they getting all their ducks in a row? Are they lining everything up right? Have they followed along with your plan? No. Are they loving? No. But we love. What does that look like with these people? Do I need to say it again? Let's. Love is patient. Love is what? Kind. It doesn't envy or what? Boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on what? Its own way. Love is not irritable even when it's tired or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears. Remember last week we talked about this word. It's not like a tent pole under a tent holding up the top. It, it, it's a word that it has the idea of covering. It's like, it's like the roof on your house. Roof says, I'm going to take all this. Take the hail, take the wind, take everything. A good roof. Love is like a good roof. I'm going to bear everything. No matter what is thrown at me, I'm taking it. Because these people underneath me, I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to take all the worst stuff. Because I love. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. And love endures all things. Love doesn't have a line that you go, I've taken it up to this point, but now I'm done. If those words come out, that's not love speaking. And if you say you love God, but you don't love the people around you that you can see, then you are a liar and the truth is not in you. I know that hearing these things, there's not a person in this room that has not come short of love. Agreed? Every single one of us today ought to be going, God, build more love in me. I need more love. I have not been as loving as you are. Change me. Turn me. Work in my heart. I want you to think. Don't come up yet. I want you to think with me about Christ as a demonstration of love for us, as an example for us, as it's put in the Bible. As an example for us, we say, well, how do we love? Look at Jesus. When he was mocked, did he respond? When they tormented him, did he call down 10,000 angels and say, all right, I've had enough of this? 
when he was falsely accused, did he set the record straight? In fact, one of the characteristics of Christ on the way to the cross was that he did what? He answered what? Not. You guys know this? He answered not a word. How? Love. Love bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. What's your standard that you ought to be shooting for? By the grace of God, that. So let's remember, right? That's what we're doing. Right? We've got this bread. What does Christ say when he takes the bread? He prays, he blesses it, and then he says, this is my body, which is what? Broken for you. So this is my body, which is what? Broken for you. What's he say about his blood? This is the new covenant in my blood, right? Which is what? Poured out for you. Was Christ's blood literally poured out for you on the cross? You picture that cross, that blood being shed for you? There's a place in the Bible where... where uh, it's talking about how far you will go. And Paul, it's Paul writing, he says, have you gone to the place where you've shed blood yet? Then you haven't gone far enough. Most of us drop short way before we get to that point, don't we? But I'm laying it out clear, as John has. You say you love God, but you're not going to love the way Christ loved. You don't know God. You don't know who he is. You may not have a relationship with him yet. Let today be a day that you say, God, I've, I've been still obsessed with me, myself. Lord, I want to die on that cross today. Help me to deny myself and take up my cross and follow you this week into this world to love everyone in a way that is miraculous. I can't do it, Lord. People are so frustrating. People are so challenging. People are so rude. People are so self-absorbed. There's no way I can... Yes, there is. God's love can abide in you as you abide in Him. And it, be, it can become manifest. And people can look at you because of the grace of God and go, now they might say it this way, they're so patient. They're so kind. That, that they never are envious. They don't boast. They're not arrogant. They're going to be saying it. Those are the things that they can detect. But what is that? Love. The love of God being made manifest in you, a sinful human being.